Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm hard, wet, and wild. That's what one of my neighbors said when I saw him walk. He's got this cool <laughs> dog. And, you know, I said, hey, Rob, how you doing? He goes, I'm hard, wet, and wild. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a great start. Hell yeah. I, you know, I love that. Overall, I'm hard, wet, and wild. <laughs> well, I am glad to hear that. I, uh, You know what, man? Today, just today, I'm hard, wet, and wild, too. Yay! Well, you, mm-hmm. yeah, you got that sort of vibe. The hair is really coming together. You're, you really mm-hmm. got kind of a, well, a sort of a Dennis Hopper, Dave Crosby Oklahoma biker messiah thing going on. I love that. That's my favorite description of my hair so far. I was this weekend, I was considering getting it cut. Rios wants to see it get cut because you can't tell because of Zoom's picture quality. But this right here is about half gray. So these are, this is salt and pepper now. So oh, wow. Rios wants me to only get my 36 hair more Christmas. <laughs> only 36 more Christmases. That's right. <laughs> yep, you got that right. But she wants to see where the where the gray is coming in. But I like the hair now too. It 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 got past its awkward phase and now I feel like it's a part of my identity. Well, uh, question. I, uh, you know, that screenshot I took of you and Gustavo last time, I sent that on to my mom because she's fans of, of you and family. And mm-hmm. uh, it really is. A, I mean, he, he's got that pre-Raphaelite sort of cherub beauty. He does. Um, yeah. <laughs> but she asked, has, have, um, have the three of you ever, or is it, you know, reasonably locally possible to, you know, get into historic costume and mm. do like, a, you know, an old daguerreotype sort of, you know, pseudo uh, historic photograph. Cause she thought this could look really, really, you know, she didn't say cool, but you know what I mean? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really cool idea. I think that I could convince them to do that, especially if it's a, multiple costs so what i'm thinking is old old timey daguerreotype and then we have you know the jetsons space age 80s laser type background and then we maybe we have prehistoric where i'm dressed up like fred flintstone and you know gus has a little bone in his hair if we do a series of themed shots i think i could sell that yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think that would be so. And your choice of of what you know as as starting points; those are all so relevant to to the American sort of highway lore and mm-hmm. the, the mythology that of, that we've been talking about. I think you'd be fantastic. I think so too. I think so too. I um a family in time. A family in time. I learned a cool term that I wanted to relate to you at the top of the show. It's from the Japanese, and it is called, this is a way to describe a type of person, a feelings yakuza. Wow. A feelings yakuza is somebody who takes their feelings and their personal preferences 
and turns it into a broader social issue that usually requires governmental intervention. So I don't like people who sneeze on the train. So the government needs to make a law to make sure that nobody ever sneezes on the train. Or I really hate the films of Wes Anderson. So the government needs to publicly execute Wes Anderson. That is called a feelings Yakuza. And I'm going to be using that frequently from now on on the show because I feel like it's such a great clunky but evocative term for yeah. things that you and I see every day. We know we know feelings yakuza's. It's it, it well it's it's the the passive aggressive gangster. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? That's really mm-hmm. what that means. It's and it's kind of a, a a really another way of looking at social media at large. I think yeah. so. I think so. There's another phrase that I learned called thrashing the bathroom so (laughs) thrashing the bathroom means uh it comes from a twitter thread that i read on a great sub stack called garbage day that's where i got both of these terms from and garbage day is a kind of roundup about what's going on on twitter hence the name and thrashing the bathroom comes from a twitter thread in which a man relates his experience Uh, working on on a volunteer basis at a homeless shelter. And he talked about how his assignment was to clean the bathrooms. And he found that no matter how many times he cleaned the bathrooms, as soon as he'd be done doing so, a homeless person would go into it and destroy the thing, right? Make a huge mess. And he eventually went to his supervisor and said, you know, look, this is what I signed up for. I get it. That's fine. But why do they keep destroying it as soon as I clean it? And the supervisor said, because it gives them a sense of control. There's nothing else in their lives that's in their control. So this destruction behind closed doors in a confined space gives them a feeling that they're in charge of something. So thrashing the bathroom in an online context is when people go after low-hanging fruit, soft targets, right? So you're not going to go after the president of the United States because you can't. But you can find guys like you, me, several other people who have become what's called the main character on Twitter and utterly destroy their lives for that same sense of control that those homeless people were getting from thrashing the bathroom. I love that expression. That was, and that was well explained. Uh, I wonder if there, there must be a kind of diagrammatic mathematical spectrum way of seeing who could be potential victims and targets and who's off limits because in in a way some people although they're i mean the president or say elon musk uh certainly you know out of reach in terms of any physical way to approach god only knows how to find them i mean i'm you know it's possible to do that of course they're being tracked by you know certain cyber people all the time and you wonder how they manage to maintain the loyalty of their security teams you know <laughs> that's uh that's this is not... a big problem that douglas douglas rushkoff wrote about this a few years back he had this great article where he was brought in to a secret meeting with six tech billionaires unnamed and 
he's known for being a futurist. You're familiar with Rush Cosworth. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, yeah. I've met you, him. You've, yeah, you've I, met I, him, yeah. I'm right. glad to see him bounce back. He kind of went off the boil for a few years, but I think, right. yeah, no, I, I have a lot of time for his work. Yeah, so his reputation as a futurist got him in this room with these tech billionaires, and they wanted to talk to him about the apocalypse, should it happen. More specifically, the post-apocalypse, because they had spent an exorbitant amount of money making underground bunkers, uh, making sure that the bunkers would be fully staffed. And the question that they posed to him was, how do we know that our security forces and our staff won't rise up, kill, and eat us? His response was, oh, they're going to. They're absolutely going to. And I think that the rich have this curse that comes along with the money that they eventually get where, you know, it's the same problem I'm sure Kings had back in the day. Who's going to poison me? Who's going to stick a knife in my back? Yeah. And billionaires for all their, you know, jet setting and, you know, their, their smooth lives. I think most of them live in a constant state of fear. It's really not where you'd want to be. I want to not, you know, you know what I want? I want $2 million. $2 million. That's what I think a lot of people would say. And also to not necessarily have that associated with your face, that you're earning that correct of your appearance or your, your cleavage, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, having to sizzle in a bikini every two days would be difficult for you. I think we don't want that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting uh, experiment to, to, you know, I, I, I think that could be an old, I mean, I would actually check if you started a Substack sort of thing on that of like a different bikini photograph of yourself every day, I think you could build a fan base, you know, I don't well, know where you yeah. get the, I think, no, you'd have to get sort of people donating the bikinis, obviously, but right. fashion designers would, would come along into it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I don't know if there's a bikini bottom that's capable of fitting what I'm working with. <laughs> uh, uh, good for you. Good for but that you. might be part of the appeal. I look, I think you got to work with everything that you've got. <laughs> Make no apologies, celebrate everything, you know. It all it's all it's all good. It's all, it's all good. good. It's all good. Do you have a band and an aphorism for us today? I do. Okay. The band comes from the headlines and I hope I'm not uh, offending anyone as always, but I have a long uh, history of helping people in this category. So I don't, I don't (laughs) care. Uh, I, I'm, I, you know, they've been students and friends and, and I think technically I'm heading this way too. So it's the disability segment and there was a woman who put forward a, uh, well, a fairly strong request to the Disney Corporation for them to please, but, you know, in full caps, develop a disabled princess character. So I thought disabled princess would be a great name for a band. You actually look like you could be the lead singer, the biker messiah, mm-hmm. lead singer of Disabled Princess. Somebody's got to do it, and it's got to be me. Uh, the 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 name of the album sort of came, uh, and I it's sort of at a little bit of an angle. 
automatic history. Hmm. Hmm. Automatic history. You know, I, I, like I, I thought of that. And I thought to myself, you know, this is another example of something really simple that I don't think I've heard before. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, not not as clear and sharp as that, but here are a couple of their song titles because I've been thinking about um, and getting my students looking at really obvious ideas that maybe aren't so obvious because that's the bigger thing. Nothing is really obvious. But one song title is Who Likes Their Chicken Rare? You know, if you don't, you could like chicken rarely or not at all. But if you're liking chicken, you don't want it rare. It's a lot of things in our cult, you know, language matrix of culture that really don't need to be said. And yet, because we never even think about them, maybe they do need to be said because there's a Mm -hmm. whole lot of other things that creep over to that category. Another one is insects don't make good pets. You know, think about how often, you know, really, maybe someone's a butterfly collector. Usually the butterflies are dead, but a real live butterfly house, you've got to be one of the tech billionaires. And finally, and this is a little bit disgusting. Well, I think it's actually very disgusting, but it, uh, it it's a real news story that came from this week about a very adult sex toy. Now, just pause on that sentence structure for a moment. How, when did we start saying that we had to say adult sex toy? (laughs) I mean, whoa, whoa. Mm -hmm. Did we really need to say that? I would have thought sex toy would have got adult in there, kind of, you know. But because of the nature of this, it is for those predisposed to larger insertions. It is a whopping, gigantic butt plug dildo shaped precisely anatomically like a baby. And the instructions further say that when rectally I mean, it's just it's just completely bizarre. But when inserted feet first, and I apologize to listeners for too much detail, but that's the kind of story <laughs> this is. When inserted feet first, the head will appear as if crowning at birth. So this is a very perverse group, disabled princess. They're, I think, a really good straight up down and dirty bar band but they have some uh real wit and satire in their songs and they're all about just messing with people's heads i have questions about (laughs) what so first of all by the time you've gotten to the point where you can insert a, a replica of an infant in your rectum, I have a very practical question. And I'm, you know, it is funny. It is funny, but I've wondered about this and I don't want anybody to get mad at me about this. Do you have to wear a diaper 
at that point, do you have sphincter constriction ability at that point? Are you able to, to hold it, so to speak? That's either way too forensic or way too practical a consideration yeah. for me to deal yeah. with. Yeah. I admire your uh, just your engineering curiosity in that. I uh, just want to know uh, if if one of our listeners who, for whatever reason, knows this, wants to email me. Uh, I won't ask any questions about why you know this, but I am I am curious. The set. So, why is it supposed to simulate a birth? What's the what is what's the is is this a fetish that people have like a, who giving birth to something out of your ass is this you know sometimes people talk about nuclear war in negative terms <laughs> it's not all bad i uh, look i am i am with you i i i believe Freud, amongst others, did talk about anal birth, but I think that that the notion of of giving this strange idea, which has found its way into an actual product that can be bought, God only knows where these things are manufactured. You know, I think we have some dim idea, but that would be to follow the path of that idea. From drawing board to, you know, fun, you know, getting the money to do it to, you know, how it all works is just more than I can, can deal with. Uh, but wow. How could that possibly be explained? You know, you know, man, there are things in this world that I think we're just not. So here's what I think is truly strange about it is that there are psychopathologies that we have given up on trying to understand. And then there are other ones that are it, it, I guess what I'm trying to say, and I'm still a little, I'm a little shaken up by the idea of this, <laughs> this tour. <laughs> there. I get the impression that everybody that we know would think that that was weird, but I can't help but think that there's a certain I sure contingent. So. I can't help but think that there's a certain contingent of a certain kind of ultra progressive liberalism that would say, well, I don't see what the problem is. What's the, are you, what are you sex negative? And I'm like, I don't think this is sex. I I think this is something something else you know i remember in the 90s and the early 2000s there were a bunch of books that dealt with you know self amputation self mutilation brian evanson's last days is a great novella that's about this it's about a private detective who infiltrates a cult of self amputees and ends up becoming a self amputee himself and in 2002 that was seen as being a very, you know, kind of strange and and bizarre thing. And I, I, what frightens me the most among many things about the baby butt plug is the fact that I have this sense that 
there is a non-zero contingent of people who wouldn't think that was weird. Well, Google on it right now, butt baby, it's called. I'm not doing that. <laughs> Good for you. That was just a test. Look, I, I think it's a I think it would be a bold person who in any sort of public setting would would you know say this is uh just a fun novelty and everyone's adults here and what's the harm? And I I I think it would just it it would have to to be over the edge. Yeah. You know, really. I mean well, yeah, I really, I just don't think that there's any way that someone would feel comfortable speaking on behalf of butt baby in public. If you want to go viral, if you want to go viral, we've just given you the path to do so. Take yeah, up the defense, yeah. take up the defense. You know, it's not yeah. going to be me. I'm, that's not how take I'm going down challenge. in history. But take it's up a the TikTok challenge. challenge. The TikTok challenge. Yeah, TikTok challenge, anal birth. I love butt baby. I, I love, love to see the head crowning out of a rectum. Oh, God. Well, wow. this is, this is wow. unfortunately, I'm sorry to have brought everything down to, you know, a truly uh, base level, but there you go. But I'll I'll bounce back with a little bit of a twist on it in the aphorism because I think as you know we're amateur anthropologists and we're concerned mm-hmm. and curious about the strange vectors of behavior uh, of our time as as we should be. So this gets to a little bit more of that or or the same issue from a different angle, and I. It, I've, I've phrased it as an assertion, but it, it could easily be a question, too. It's easier to explain pornography than it is the popularity of horror. Hmm. And I, I think, I mean, I wanted to throw that past you because you've had more to do with, with horror as a genre. Well, I don't know. I mean, I've had something. I mean, I'm not completely, you know, innocent mm-hmm. of that at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Um, but on the other hand, well, you know what? In any case, it's a question yeah. that, that that you're, you know, more than prepared to to answer. What do you think of that as a statement? Well, yeah, it's true. What Is I would think. It is interesting. It's something that I haven't thought of before, and it gets my gears turning. Pornography depicts the sort of the original dirty act. and But murder's not that far behind, and frightening things aren't that far behind. So I would say that in terms of horror, I think that things like dismemberment and creatures in the dark, serial killers, and fear overall, they would have been and still are in some cases inseparable from sex. I think of horror as a type of pornography. Uh, Jordan Harper. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Yeah. I, 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 I think of, of 
I can certainly understand that I have I have often put a horror that is either well that's caught my attention either for good or for bad in that category. Um, I think that there are some of the same brain and nervous system and an intuition system, you know, buttons being pressed. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the question that's interesting about it is is coming at it from the angle of the enjoyment of the entertainment. It's easier to understand why you would enjoy watching two people have sex instead of a person dismembering another person. Where does that enjoyment come from? It asks some questions that I don't think people who are real horror aficionados are being honest when they when they answer what do you like about it and i'm saying this as somebody who does enjoy a good horror movie i like gore i like violence i like kung fu movies i like uh, i like all kinds of splatter entertainment but what is it about that that's so appealing and i think that that question often gets pushed aside with this assertion well it's just fake mm. yeah Techni I don't, technically I don't yes technically uh, yes but i'm with you in that to the brain i don't think that it makes much of a difference the brain is perceiving it as you know especially as special effects have gotten better and better you know, for all intents and purposes, if it's done well, it can actually look like somebody's pulling their guts out or getting their head cut off or or what have you. Well, the real versus make-believe dichotomy is a very interesting way to compare pornography. And, True. Uh, and that's a good point. Because a lot of people would say, well, that's not real sex. You think, mm -hmm. well, wait a minute, but are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, I mean, how is it not real? You right. mean it's theatrically staged. Whereas when you say, well, the blood and guts in a horror film, you know, they're not real or the deaths aren't real unless Alec Baldwin's in it. Um, you know, uh, that I'm, un I'm uncertain about all of those things. And I, I'd like to hold, I've come back to, um, you know, when we started talking about the uh, for a paradigm for the future, we did mention the power of photography, video, film, all of those things. I, I'm ready to get back into that at, at some point very soon to talk about how we process the real versus mm -hmm. the unreal. I think that yeah. um, we can get to that sort of, you know, it, soon. Um because I think that's a big issue about how we learn how to process that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And it is a learned thing. Um, and I've been thinking, you know, there, there's a lot of, 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 you know, slapstick comedy and car crashes and a lot of things that we've some, we, we learn pretty quickly how to process and it's not inherent in the, in the work. And we know that mm -hmm. from, from relatively recent and very, very reliable uh, in this regard, anyway, anthropology around the world, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. that processing two-dimensional images and as three-dimensional, and then as also 
realities unto themselves and also somehow a commentary on you know the reality that we call reality very yeah. weird stuff very yeah. weird stuff so but you liked it you thought that that <clears throat> i had been i i think the reason why that grabbed me was that i have asked people who are real aficionados of horror and some in some cases uh people who are you know, publishing and editing in the field. And I've never felt really satisfied with, because a lot of the argument back is a functionalist one of, well, you're containing the problem. You're, you're, you know, creating an imaginary little snow globe where terrible things can happen, which then cathartically eases the anxieties and terrors of these things really happening to you. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I don't, I don't get I don't that. find that. I don't find that. I've heard that argument as well. I do like, so I think that the imagination and the function of story could have a potential for what you just mentioned to be an element of it, but it is necessary, but insufficient to stop at that point because at some point if we're talking real honesty it's that you find a kind of beauty in blood gore and death and there's something there's something pretty about it the same way there's something pretty about a flower or a beautiful woman or what have you and i think that people shy away from that because they understandably don't want to be looked at as a psychopath. <laughs> but I think that it's, <laughs> it's simply the the best look, we're not, we're, we're all revolted by the, the baby butt plug, right? We're not freaks here, but we're also human beings. And I think that the, con the container, the container thing uh, makes a lot of sense to me as one part of it. But I think the other part, we got to be honest, we like seeing fucked up shit. Yeah, well, there's a, that's a huge umbrella to open because a lot of things fall into that category. Yeah, and, right. And totally, they're, they could be very, very different. Um, I mean, I, I love the story just this, but I don't want to let this whole subject slip away. But I there was a story about this family in uh, who had adopted or taken in what they thought was uh, uh, a Nepalese or Tibetan Mastiff, which were enormous dogs. They don't look anything like my Mastiff. They're, they're long-haired for sure because they're in Tibet, right? And they're enormous. And they're absolutely deadly. Like one male can can kill a whole pack of North American wolves and Asian steppe wolves. They're hardcore. But in this case, so they knew they were they were on to like having a big monster beast creature. But it was more than they bargained for because after two years, two years. They learned it was a bear, you know, <laughs> and now you think of, uh, well, I mean, so the, the explanation about horror in a sense, I mean, if, if we were to look at it, the functionalist thing, the way of, 
Well, you could then do a, a, a young parent uh, horror film about the, you know, the, the child and mm -hmm. it, it could be, you know, it's, it's the, the exorcist, I suppose, uh, or, you know, the omen or, you know, um, that's, but I, I've never bought that really. I just don't, somehow that doesn't, I think we're still in search of what, and I think that's maybe what the power of it is, is that uh, we we really don't want to say too clearly what it is that attracts us to horror, you know? Um, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that within that reticence to be honest about what it is that you like about a given thing, you can find a whole swarm of cultural anxieties that explain a lot of stuff because isn't one of the major drivers of the neuroses of our days now the inability to just be honest about things of being afraid what the group will think of us if we say xyz I've noticed it in a lot of my friends, just, you know, the, the going along to get along thing has just gone out oh. of control to the point where people can't just say, I think that that's weird. Or conversely, I think that's kind of hot, or I think that's, yep. that does something for me, you know, watching John Wick slaughter a room full of bad guys with a katana and a Beretta gets my blood pump i love it you know i love the violence i think violence is cool i think evil stuff is cool yin and yang right doesn't mean i'm an evil person it's just honesty well it, it, yeah and in another way of saying that in the old currency would have been common sense mm. you know and it, just a natural acceptance of of human nature with a, a pretty rich complexity, you know, as William Burroughs would say, life and all its rich variety, you know, mm -hmm. and it's that that's the I mean, what what possible other major lesson has world literature taught us? Right. You know, whether it's the thousand and one nights or Chaucer or uh, Don Quixote, on and on and on, you know, Rabelais, you know. Rabble. I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, you've got just, I can't imagine, well, you, you, postmodernism is, is, is too faded as a literary form to put forward that book, you know, Gargantua and Pantagruel as a kind of, you know, um, a contemporary version of a, an historic thing, but if it were presented to a young New York City editor today, I think there might be a stroke, you know, some sort of, of deep trauma shock at, at you know, uh, just so politically incorrect, it would just, you know, the, the mm -hmm. pinball machine would tilt mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and the ears would bleed. I like that. The pinball machine will tilt and the ears will bleed. Yeah. <laughs> that is kind of cool. Wow. Well, um, all right. Your imaginative challenge 
Yes. Okay. Now, for listeners, occasionally David is tasked with uh, performing a response uh, in visual terms because he does have some drawing ability and it's an important part of the whole imaginative challenge method of, of engaging language and all our senses, but certainly visual symbolic sense, because that's where a lot of the human brain is, is really operating on. So I've sent David a rebus and a rebus is simply a puzzle that uses icons, visual icons only in sequence to suggest a phrase or uh, a language solution. So it is a kind of an equation. And that's very interesting because oftentimes visual symbols are, are not uh, equations in language. And when we try to make them that way, there's all hell breaks loose because we may not know the history of the symbol. We may not be sort of working on that correct level at all. But the example I've given him is, a, is one from the inside of bottle caps of Pabst Blue Ribbon back mm. in the day. And I don't, uh, I'm not, I don't drink anymore. I don't drink beer. So I don't know if the Pabst in bottles still has those, but they were fabulous little psychotic messages. And of course, if you were drinking and also high back in the day when I was more familiar with them they would be like messages from beyond so david has been given uh a rebus example he's going to come back to us with his own rebus and then we're also going to see if he can have guessed what the <laughs> pops prompt was but i know i wanted more to focus on the the new creative challenge in his corner rather than the analysis of the pbr one so okay. you got it my, my own rebus okay cool i can see the aura around your brain change because of the visual field mm -hmm. i can see another part stimulated it's it's uh i'm not a really proficient aura reader yet but i'm i'm getting more tuned into that mm. i uh, uh if you learn any techniques for how to do that, let me know because I'm a big aura guy. I have just always thought it would be cool to be able to see auras. I've always had a very good gut sense for people's personality, intelligence level, their level of being an NPC. Uh, but it would just be cool to be able to see the aura around a person, which is something I... 100% believe uh, exists because why wouldn't it? Of course you give off. Oh, I, I don't think there's any doubt about it. I mean, I, I can understand people trying to dismiss that or, or being reluctant to try to work out a physics of it. But mm -hmm. uh, if you want sort of some more, um, you know, crystal radio sort of DIY level uh, stuff, you've got the mm -hmm. means to, in, in, under your roof line to do so. Uh, if at all possible, 
use the triangulation method that we use for uh, map and compass reading context with a child, as in Gus, mm -hmm. and a dog, like Kalua. And mm -hmm. their sense of someone, I mean, the ideal scenario would be someone that you don't know or have maybe never met, but uh, or only dimly met, and you encounter this person in the presence of Gus and Kahlua. Mm -hmm. And if you mm -hmm. could maintain focus on that person, but also at least mentally quickly draw <clears throat> a triangulation sense between these two other perceptive creatures, you would start to feel an energy flow going that way. And it would give some structure that would help you really have more confidence in your intuition about mm. the world. I, mm -hmm. I think that we see them, we we lack the confidence in our ability to articulate it because it's not really a vocabulary issue. It is a schematic model issue. It's mm -hmm. dimensional, not linguistic. Mm -hmm. So if you get that that geometric sense of, of convergence together, you will get that more organic sense of the aura that you are perceiving, but you're not fully allowing yourself to acknowledge <clears throat> because it sounds well, fringy and unspecific and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Did that, that make sense? sense? It makes total sense and completely squares with my current, most of my current reading has to do with Taoism. And I've been, fascinated by these books like opening the dragon gate and the chronicles of Tao, these stories of these enlightened masters transmitters of the the dragon lineage of they call it uh the complete reality sect of Taoism. isn't that cool that the is cool. reality sect but their ability to turn invisible and to live for 600 years and also to uh, kind of see auras. And a lot of Taoism is about forgetting rather than learning. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a cool method of discipleship in terms of, you know, I'm not coming to you maybe to learn, or if I am, perhaps that's only a part of it, but I'm also trying to learn how to forget because those preconceived notions yeah. are messing with my abilities, basically. Yeah, the deprogramming, well, that's just so where I'm at. That really is through, you know, a, a variety of different channels. But I think that is um, a, a really, really important message. And it's also very important to add to that, that, that the problem with unlearning or deprogramming and, and really scrambling Mm -hmm. the consciousness is not is it may be related to age in certain ways mm -hmm. but it's not dependent mm -hmm. on that because it comes built in with what we've been talking about is the deep syntaxes and deep grammars of consciousness and civilization as we pretend mm -hmm. to, and we you know pretend to practice in the the 21st century all of that is we've got that built into it and we don't even know how deeply it's it's just in all our files you know it's in the idea of files 
it's as we've talked about with George Lakoff, uh, you know, it's the metaphors that are so deeply ingrained. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to sort of get back to the whole uh, subject we've been on lately about architecture, because this is the fundamental architecture. And so scrambling that up, trying to get another perspective on it is what uh so many wisdom traditions, whether it be the, you know, uh, with Taoism, or I was thinking of the dervishes today, you know, the Sufis. Ooh, yeah, um, yeah. Love the, that, got a lot of time for those guys. Oh, that's just, I mean, it, and there you get the hypnosis, the, the, the meditative trance state, and you get that whole sense of, of the Middle East, you know, Turkey and North Africa, the crazy, music that goes off without time signature and gets lost, which is also the classical music of North India. But you made me, if you're, if you're going to uh, keep digging on and grooving on the Taoism thing in this moment, and I think that's a nice uh, thing with the whole Japanese uh, thing that you do with, with agitator and, and crime and all the dark, weird, twisted stuff. Taoism's yeah. a nice look, but one of my favorite moments in broadcast television, and that seems like a huge claim, doesn't it? Is George Lucas's interview with Oprah at the Skywalker Ranch, immaculately manicured by gardeners who are, of course, totally invisible. Mm-hmm. And Lord Lucas is just off on the most fantastical ego trip that is beyond ego talking about inventing the force Mm. and with absolutely no regard for the history of religion literature philosophy fantasy anything that might have ever existed before that thought. No, it came from him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Oprah is the perfect sycophant for that in this uh-huh. absolutely uh, immaculate, lush, and totally degraded with decadence uh, Northern California vineyard setting. It's wonderful. I think that... Uh... Lucas, do you think that Lucas really didn't know what his influence is? Do you think he was just sort of overtaken by a kind of arrogance based on how well Star Wars had done? Or do you, so there's a story that was told often about Robin Williams in comedy clubs back in the 70s, where whenever Williams would walk into a place, they would turn a red light on. And what that meant to all the comics in the know was to not use your best material because Williams, not being some guy who's, you know, trying to steal people's material, they called him a sponge and he just absorbed whatever he was listening to at the time and spit it back out in his own act. Do you think that that's what's going on with Lucas or do you think that he's more of a, he's not being completely intellectually honest with where he got these ideas. 
Okay. Well, I think I think Lucas is a very different uh, mentality and character than than Williams. My sense of Robin Williams, at least up until very you know near the end, I I I think if you go back and look at his early staff, yes, he's talented. I get that. I sp- I I mm-hmm. you know. And, and talented, you know, there was still a kind of this old cheesy vaudeville sense of what defined talent, you know, talent mm-hmm. show level of talent. But he seems just certifiably nuts to me. I mean, mm-hmm. he seems like obviously someone who would be enormously difficult to deal with. Uh, the cocaine and alcohol problems almost go without saying just to calm down the, the manic energy. Um and I think he just got so hyped up and wound up and he was kind of one of, you know, in a lucky position to be allowed to do that on things like the tonight show. And mm. I, I don't know. So in some ways, the, the, the similarity between Lucas and Williams is they were both enormously successful, particularly Lucas with it, in my view, not that much talent. Um, I don't think Lucas really is, is that smart. And I don't mm-hmm. think he's a very deep uh, student of culture. I think I think what he what he makes you know movies about is really pulp culture. And I think he might mm-hmm. be pretty well regarded, you know, in that way. I think the better analog for him is Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And although I think Stephen King does know his, you know, I think he's I, I put him on a very different level in terms of. Uh, well, on, on many different levels, but nevertheless, there's there are some similarities, uh, and I don't know how um, Lucas could really function with anyone who wasn't on his payroll. <laughs> I've thought about that before. When I there's a great video that I saw on Twitter of Lucas going to get waffle house or golden corral and he's just kind of a a guy there's nothing remarkable or special about him and i think he really showed that when he did those prequels he showed just kind of how empty of talent he actually is how little uh he has in terms of ideas sorry just finishing up my my rebus oh cool there we go. Okay, got it. Um, all right. Now, I'm, that sorry, that one took a little, just a quick, a quick. No, I understand. I, I understand. And it was very interesting because we're uh, for listeners, we we're we're zooming now these days, so mm-hmm. I get to actually see uh, the biker Messiah in action, <laughs> and I can mm-hmm. see the origin. The whole there's a definite, uh, and I, I I like giving David uh, visual challenges symbolic thinking challenges because i know that he really engages with them and there's it just it just came to me and i i had to get that down you know i before i lost it because you you know you and i get caught up in these conversations and then it would be five minutes to show time and I'd have to scramble. <laughs> Look, I think you need to do more with this, uh, the, the doodling and make that really a constant part of your journaling process. There's, uh, and the physicality is so important. 
there's uh, one of my students who's a really cool dude, black dude, who is is really got a tremendous work ethic. He was in the military in uh, stationed in North Dakota up until pretty recently. I think I might have mentioned that. Um, but I've I've got him really aware now that when he's when the thinking really starts is when he's talking with his hands. He's using his hands because I said to him, "You've got to tell." You've got to tell the moment you're you're not using your hand, you're you're uncertain and you're you're in resistance to the energy flow of, of the thought process. The moment the hands start working in, in, in any way, you can see the aura change. And I think you've got a natural draw to the to to drawing, to physicality in that sort of way. And you'll start, you know, if that just becomes just you know, almost second nature. And also too, you know, there are some great notepads and beautiful, you know, quality things and, you know, like great pencils and shit, you know, stack. Yeah. What is that one? What is that one? Oh, so the, it's Mars Lumograph. Dude, let me show you my analog notebook since we're doing notebook porn right now. Sorry, listeners, you can't see this, but I have to show Chris. Look at this. It's hard to, this comes from Germany and this is called analog C S E A. And it is only available through uh, the mail. They have no online presence whatsoever. I found one of these in a bookstore downtown here in Edmond, Oklahoma, because the bookseller there had developed a relationship with them, but you, it feels, uh, unfortunately, I don't actually know through the screen. Yeah, it's beautiful. See, it's, it's sensual, you know, yeah. and you, yeah. what you need, like, here's my look. This is what I would recommend. Have a look at this. Ooh, a talk about sensual. This I love that aqua so, color, too. Oh, man. Oh, it's shit. beautiful. And and this is it's a Rotring 800. And uh, they're honestly not that expensive. To me, it's a pure magic thing. And if you have a notebook like that, you need to uh, have a magic. Pen. You you mentioned the doodling and we were talking earlier about unlearning. And I have been doing a lot of work to unlearn uh, some things, some negative things that have infected my personality because of my relationship with my father. And uh, I did a lot of deep work on this. And the the whole reason, I think, that I got into writing the way that I did was because dad wanted to be a novelist. And so he was a very, I never, I've never known that. Yeah. He was a very shut off man and he would always be reading paperback novels and never wanted to talk to me, never wanted to play with me. So I would go out into the garage and I would look, I would look at these books because I wanted to see what was so fascinating about these things that he would prefer to spend his time with them rather than me. And when we had our home PC, I would often open it up to play games, pinball, whatever. This is 1998 or whatever. Uh, And he would have his novel open in Word, and I would start fixing the words. I would start changing it. I would start saying, that's not right. That's not the way those lines should go. So this is my Batman origin story about why the way I am the way I am. But the other thing that he would always do is doodle on napkins and what have you. And he 
to give to give the man his credit he's a talented he was a talented cart he could have been a cartoonist he would draw very uh not lifelike but uh uh sort of dunesbury-esque characters right bloom county style um and uh so in my process of both understanding this kind of these kind of psychological hangups that have led to a lot of great things in my life really i mean i'm happy that i'm a writer and i've met people like you and that i've been able to to create things that i'm proud of but drawing is the next step for me right because there's a fear man there's a fear about becoming your dad especially when you had the kind of relationship that my dad and i had very contentious very combative very icy cold when it wasn't fiery and hot so uh that's the next stone that I'm looking to to turn over in my own brain. Well, it's interesting the way you uh, unraveled that because I think it's very um, it's very easy for us all to think in terms of skills, capabilities, aptitudes, tendencies, things we like, things we don't, things we're good at, and you know, you can inventory that all out to the end of time. But underlying every single aspect that you could ever think of in those frames is a deep psychology, you know? Mm-hmm. Never escape that. That that, you know, particularly when I'm I'm working on on my big memory book. And you know, a lot of people think of of, of memory uh in terms of of the computer model of that and it's you know a facility that that somehow the individual self can access we just need more hard you know we need a bigger hard drive and and those sorts of things Mm -hmm. and that's just obviously not true that memory has a lot to do with selectivity that's the nature of it that's that defines it and one of the selective processes is, is also is kind of what we want to remember, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is all this is was the really the beginning of, of psychology that way. But we we can't deal with that because it's so fundamental. Mm-hmm. And uh, today's or this episode's tool deals with that. Um, it's it's just it is so fundamental that psychology, you know. And that's why the importance of these physicality exercises of trying to make concept and intellect and and thought and aura and the immaterial as material, physical, tangible, and artifactual so that you can refer to it uh, later in time, which is a cool bit of magic. Why that's so important is, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, because we're trying to find out a little bit more about the psychology that we're almost obliged to overlook just in order to stay functioning. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, we got away from, from Lucas and the force and, and Taoism. I was interested where that was. I went off on my, I got on the therapy couch for this. Yeah, that episode. was kind of cool. That you know, that was interesting. Uh, 
because you, you I mean that you don't do that normally and I I wanted just to let the cameras roll on that I thought that was really uh, <laughs> that was really quite novel there I I enjoyed that I do you want to go further with that or I yeah I don't mind I think that's cool I mean I would be looking to you to to guide it uh but I think that that kind of that subject matter in terms of you know, understanding uh, why we do the things that we do, the Taoism, unlearning. In uh, I've been thinking a lot recently about this phrase that I heard from the Marine Corps, uh, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Have you heard about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about that phrase. And I like what you're saying about, you know, sort of connecting these more amorphous at times ethereal uh oral you know we start off talking about auras these ethereal kind of things putting them into more concrete bodily terms because to me that's directly on the tip that i'm at right now in terms of understanding my body the body that i'm in right now as uh, without getting too far into the utilitarian materialist perspective of it, it is a tool for a kind of eternal, more mystical, ethereal soul, right? So, I'm if I'll go wherever you want to go. Well, look on that note. I, I, you've. I think this is a really good, good. Well, uh, and we could double back to to. Uh, to architecture really at any time because everything falls with you know within the the frame of, of architecture but let me read this part i was just this is kind of um it's going to fit in somewhere into the memory book but i was i was writing this today could the question be phrased this way how to be made of meat and bone and to a large extent carbon and water and survive in a world wild with many invisible forces. Mm. Mm. We start to intuitively grasp that oodles of factors influencing us can't be seen. The wind fascinates many young children, later the glass in windows. But gradually we come to understand with no little confusion that there are flat out many things in the world, in other words, what of existence we can perceive and participate in, that are elementary, elementally immaterial. The terms imaginary or socially constructed, they don't make things any clearer. Immaterial or non-material will, will do. So, what if, in addition to the material substances that comprise what you take to be you, you simply accepted that there are also non-material parts or contributing elements? Some of you is material and some isn't. And I think that links to your last few words were uh, metaphysical about spirit and yeah. uh, soul and these things these words that for some reason scare a lot of people mm -hmm. um, i mean that is one of the divisions i think in 
uh, certainly uh, well, human culture globally, but certainly in America. There are some people who just really don't want to have anything to do with those ideas, are terribly uncomfortable with them, and won't uh, process them in any kind of uh, legitimately generous way. They just simply won't deal with it. And then there are other people who I think, I'm not sure if they if they're really analytically accepting it in any way at all, they, they appear to be really grooving on it, but maybe they're just nuts. You know, there is mm -hmm. that group. Mm -hmm. But if we said instead that replace immaterial and material for that dichotomy, that opposition, what if it's simply known and unknown or knowable and currently unknown? We, you know, we just look at it the, the way an AI would or an aerial view of it. We go, okay, we're going to lose some precision, but we don't have any precision to begin with. You know, we we put a factored frame around it as this this is the set of unknown things, and we, it's neutral. We don't have a we're not afraid of it, and we're not worshiping at some sort of mystic thing. I mean, I I'm quite happy being mystical. I really am, but I I want this type of thinking to not fall into that uh, necessary um, frame or Venn diagram, because I don't think it has to. I think it, it all it means is, well, one other way to say it is it, at this moment in time, our science is still incomplete. That's not a controversial remark, really. Um, but it just take that psychological tone out of it and it also gives us another way to think about the aura idea, for instance. There are other capabilities, too. But, of course, you can perceive the aura. Understanding how you do that is another matter. But I dare say that's true of, of an enormous part of our existences and, and capacities for perception. I just went to... Uh, an eye specialist today and uh, yeah look I thought I knew I've got a model of, you know of a meta you know a proper medical model of the eye I thought I really understood what's going on with that well no because I'm not an eye specialist there's a lot of stuff I don't understand mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um I think the uh the, the powers of of sense in in terms of smell and taste are absolutely so physical and visceral and overwhelming and hypnotic that we have no way to process how we do that, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and pheromones and all of that, all of those things are potentially very physically knowable, maybe measurable, maybe describable in, in completely traditional physics and chemistry terms. We just can't do all of that yet. And we can't mm -hmm. put all of that together in some way. So it's completely bizarre to me that we we throw out any of these things. And I was good to go back to one of our heroes, Rupert Sheldrake, and I'm in the process of drafting him uh, an invitation. I really hope mm -hmm. he can come on a show because we've spent time talking about. But you know why his his interest in extrasensory perception has been so ridiculed? I mean, why the vitriol? What are people right. so frightened of? Yes. This? Yes. And I just don't think this is, you know, if you really look 
at what metaphysics and metaphysical mean just on a very flat neutral way it's not some grand spooky supernatural paranormal freak out thing all it means is more than phys- more than what we know right you know? right unknown you know i think so there's man there's a lot there is a lot that i would like to say about that first of all I think that we are touching on one of the most important skills that you can have right now in an age of deep fakes and AI. Uh, we are moving into an era of radical uncertainty. So if you have a finely tuned, honed sense of the known and the unknown, it can serve you really well because it allows you to hold concepts loosely and not look towards what you can prove with your own eyes to distinguish between what is quote unquote reality or unreality. So I think that that is the first, that's the first thing that I think of to sort of dial it back to the opposite end of the spectrum. People who are overly reliant on what they're able to quantify and see as the basis for all reality have to know at a certain point that they're leaving out a huge amount of phenomena that is completely unexplainable. The simplest example that I like to use is telephone telepathy because everybody's had it. Everybody has had the experience of thinking of a person and then receiving a phone call from them within five minutes. Um, that, if you take a second to think about that, that makes no sense whatsoever, especially if it's not somebody who you've talked to recently. Um, I think that artists in particular who don't have a good grasp on uh, acceptance and integration of the unknown are not worth their salt and aren't real artists. I think they might be good typists. Maybe they're good at relating stories that they've heard in other places, but they have no real sense of the imaginal. And finally, I think that uh, having this understanding of the known and unknown seems to me to be a requirement and for a long time was was a a factor that could be found in many prominent scientists of the day. I don't think that you can even really call yourself a scientist if you don't have that ability of non-dismissal, right? It's the dismissal that's the problem. It's waving things off. If you think about how many, I was thinking about that. It was um, Crick, uh, the, the helix, the DNA helix. Francis Crick, yeah. Yeah. He was, you'll have to forgive me because you know I'm terrible with names, but he was in in competition, professional competition, with a, a, a scientist who was along a similar track. Uh, she was a woman. She uh, was, was extremely yeah. smart. And in interviews with him, he said, oh, she's about three times as smart as I am. She knows her shit really well, but she couldn't think outside. She couldn't conceive of that helix 
the way that he could because he was he was doing something wrong. I'm getting the story so vague that it's it's not having the punch that I want it to have. But he was able to discover that because he was able to think about something that was outside of the box. It was outside of the known mathematics at the time. And when you put that in the context of, you know, so many problems in, you know, advanced calculus, relativity, physics, physics is a big one. So many problems have been solved because newbies, newbies who have not been indoctrinated into the hard and fast world of physics are able to point out something that's wrong three steps into an 86 step problem uh without those kind of people we wouldn't have some of the technological advancements or understandings that we have today so the ability to look at things in an almost childlike manner um but also the ability to not dismiss something out of hand because it delves into the realm of the unknown, right? If we if we were able to put aside our prejudices and look at something like auras, I mean, who knows what we could find? Who knows that could potentially be a revolution in human psychology, figuring out auras. Because if you figure it out, maybe you can manipulate it. Maybe a psychologist could simply have a color-coded map of how well they're doing with their particular patient, right? Um, but I think that that DNA helix, when I heard that story, uh, that made something click for me, where it's it's the it's the person who is missing a key piece of established information, who is brave enough to venture into a, a place where 99% of your field is going to tell you that you're stupid and that you shouldn't be doing that. That's where every major advancement comes from. There's some fascinating things going on there. I've, and I've got to touch on all of them uh, because they just, I, I won't necessarily get the order right, but uh, I think the, the story that you're is, there is a book called the double helix which in the popular history of science terms is something of a backroom potboiler type of story mm -hmm. of, of the incredibly uh, competitive, vicious, and petty uh, sociology of some of these brilliant people. And there are many, many analogs in the history of science, and there are some exciting things. And as it turned out, uh, I believe I'm right in, in that that the – uh, as much as the book got attention and the story behind it, the backstory, the suppressed backstory, that uh, people kept finding out that there was more and more uh, backbiting, backstabbing, and just real, you know, jealousy and and uh, competitiveness that that even uh, was was talked about. So they're really, you know, this. Every group has that. I mean, I certainly think artists are, are have a lot oh, yeah. of that. Oh, yeah. But um, one of the things that that spirit of, I mean, it's called the gifted amateur uh, mm -hmm. notion. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it played such a vital role in the development of science. 
beginning in the 18th century, but really flourishing in the 19th century, particularly in natural history, in the life sciences. And there was an enormous nexus of art and science. I mean, you think of the great artists, whether it be Audubon or Gould, you know, tremendous observers of nature, but not, you know, professional scientists. And there was all of that vitality that really has kind of ground to a halt. Um, we don't have, I mean, the, the internet has not proven to be uh, the the congenial space to bring people together. There's mm-hmm. there's a lot of contention about that in, in the sociology of science circles today. We, we have access to some kind of, you know, eccentric savant characters who are not uh, academically focused. But let's face it, the, the funding of science, scientism as an institution driven by corporate, government, and military streams of money has really made that 19th century gifted amateur uh, capability, you know, really pretty impossible. You know, we've got an era of great specialization. We've got an era of, of scientists in retreat from the disarray they see in the social sciences and the humanities. And I can understand why. So they've become more rigid and more orthodox, more calcified in their views. But, you know, there has always been a kind of uh, skepticism about imaginative, kaleidoscopic, far-ranging lateral science, um, the, the possibilities of it. There have been some wondrous sort of mythologies of it. Partly the myth of Atlantis is based on that, as we touched on in some earlier episodes. But think of um, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, you know, the legato section, which is one of my favorites. It's all about these complete lunatic scientists who are trying to extract, you know, sunbeams from cucumbers. And they're presented as as foolish uh, wizards gone wrong. They've disappeared up their own butts. They just and whether Swift intended to be so biting in his satire, that's, you know, open for speculation. Um, I think he had a very conservative view then. So it's not as if Rupert Sheldrake and the CIA and the Russian Cold War military until investigating, you know, psychic phenomena, the psychic warfare and all that stuff. I mean, to us, we think that was really cool, mm-hmm. and it was uh, it was applied to some grim, you know, uh, end goals. But all of that, you know, represents some interesting speculation and possibilities of experimentation. That if we, if we had like Bezos's money or Musman, that's what we'd be investing in, right? Mm-hmm. A weird mm-hmm. foundation, hundred percent auras. UFOs, Bigfoot, ghosts, psi phenomena, um, telekinesis. Yeah. I mean, all of it, man. Yeah. It wouldn't it be fabulous to be able to, you know, vet the most 
stable, you know, really mentally capable people, as eccentric and far out as they might be, nonetheless, people who were still on the spectrum of sanity, as opposed mm-hmm. to complete loons, mm-hmm. and to be able to really fund them and challenge them to try to put their interests and, and fields of study on mm-hmm. some more, uh, I was going to say stable platform, but I think we'd be more open-ended and just say, no, look, just do what you need to do and contribute to the the great mosaic of, of strangeness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that if I had, oh man, if I had just an, an unlimited amount of money within reason without hurting anybody, I'd want to look into time travel. <laughs> I think I'd get into time travel pretty heavy. I think that would be a fantastic thing. And I think uh-huh. that, you know, it, I mean, imagine just a real serious commitment to that with a complete open, open mind, open heart, and just energy and unlimited funding. You could at the end of it, I think, come up with a minimum something just beautiful from an artistic point of view you mm-hmm. know alfred jerry the uh jerry the the pataphysics uh ubu raw um unfortunately he died at 29 i can't believe that he was he was an alcoholic but a great figure of avant-garde art and theater and writing he has a beautiful essay about taking time travel very seriously and how to construct a time machine, some technical specifications of what would be needed. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely worth reading. You'll dig it. It's very, very, um, very practical. And he's he's got his, he had such a good mind, but he was so strange and, mm-hmm. you know, just the kind of person we'd want to, uh, but pataphysics is kind of a, you know, that, that idea lives on after him. And that's what we, we could, you know, a lost explorers version of that. Yeah. I think that, yeah. Pataphysics seems to be a, a 40 inversion of science. Yeah. I think I could really, well, because if it's supposed to be this parody then my contention would be that that is where the next actual breakthrough in science would be, would be through having fun and taking the piss out of science and doing stupid experiments. We'd hit on something. We'd solve the dark matter equation by accident with no math, (laughs) just, just screwing around. Well, I think that that really that's the only way we're going to break out of the paradigmatic paralysis that we're in on so many levels, you know, it, it, and we need to apply that improvisational. I've really returned to the idea of, of improvisation. You know, we often think of that in, in purely sort of musical terms or reaction physically may often, you know, maybe kind of, uh, militaristically um Mm -hmm. but if we step back from that for a moment uh i was thinking and this is part of the a a really 
you know, big ongoing discussion. But I was looking at the a list of shows on, and there were reality shows. And then the other category, the general category, was scripted TV. And I thought, oh, you know, if we think of reality as scripted in a larger sense of being planned, orchestrated, forecast, predicted, you know, on and on and on. Well, the opposite of that would be improvised to do completely live to air real time, kind of what we're doing here. And it's in that process that suddenly something is triggered. You'll say mm-hmm. something or I'll say something, you know, mm-hmm. and that works on. The, and I think on a grand scale, that's what you're talking about. It's only in really just letting letting go of those structures or finding uh, finding some sort of negotiated cultural space, physical spaces, but conceptual and also private psychological spaces where we're, it's kind of like a playground, you know, safety and freedom, but nonetheless, you know, things can happen. There are some, there's, there's some fences, there's some mm-hmm. structure and framework. And I think that does get back to an archeological, uh, anthropological and architectural uh, question of how would we construct this kind of academy I mean, it's the Plato Academy, isn't it? It's or and it's also the Plato Republic idea of how do you create a space where the dreamers and maybe some of them are really on the the outside people who are a little bit nutty and they are having some dangerous thoughts. How do you contain that energy and nurture it? And I wonder then is the question if you look at our time right now. How are we as a civilization, because that's what we claim that we are, how are we performing in terms of that level of nurture, that level of, uh, well, management of the energy in the sense of getting socially something backward and also controlling the, the hell out of it and really destroying it and driving people to despair and suicide and how 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 do you think we're doing on that that's a big question but you know what i mean it's poorly i think that to answer the first question how do you contain let's say an academy kind of like the x-men academy for weirdos yeah that's nice i, I think that you have to think in terms of a really big container, almost a preserve of these people, because there's got to be a lot of nature. We got to think about a 20 to 30 square mile national park style preserve where these people, you can put ankle bracelets on them if you want, they'll probably find a way to chew through, where they can roam and forage and be around trees and animals and bugs and birds. Right. So that's the first thing. It couldn't look like a typical school. It couldn't be a building that these people were supposed like to go to. A white building New England Ivy League campus. No, 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 no. You couldn't you well, you could you could have places that they could come and go to of their own volition. They could not be 
expected to be at certain places at certain times, because what you'd be wanting these people to do is have enough space, enough connection to nature and enough of a sense of freedom to actually think about the problems that they have. Because what I think is that you, the natural state of this kind of thinker, whether everything from the schizophrenic to the garden variety weirdo, these ideas need a lot of room to run. Take me for example, I'm your garden variety weirdo, hopefully. Hope I'm not a schizophrenic. Uh, I think I function pretty well. But I am, uh, as you are, as most people listening to this are, I'm constricted by things like bills, uh, time. Every month, the clock rolls around and the gas bill is due. So I have to focus on that instead of focusing on whatever cool ideas I might have. So I think that the first step would to be to create a, a game reserve, <laughs> but they're not game. <laughs> they're people with uh, GPS trackers on them. Uh, make sure you have a medical team on board to make sure that nobody gets nobody gets hurt in all of this. In terms of how we're doing in this society, I mean, I'm not seeing any real outdoor activities for children all the way up to the collegiate level. I'm not seeing a focus on going out into nature and doing projects that involve trees or grass or animals or or what have you. So I think we're doing really poorly. And I think, I don't think I'm oversimplifying it. I just think that it's that simple. I just think people need the space to come up with this kind of stuff. I I think that if we switch the importance, right? If we If we turn the spyglass around, so to speak, and instead of constantly being bombarded by information and uh, uh, capitalist necessity and all this kind of stuff, uh, in which, by the way, some people function quite well, uh, I think that these other types of people would function so much better outside of that. I agree. I, I just can't imagine how we would get to that point from from the starting line of today and i see i i actually think when i look at sort of the university structures such as the ones that i'm aware of and i, I think i have a pretty good insight into it because i've seen many many layers of this from big state institutions of thirty-five thousand down to private colleges of three thousand uh i think that approach if it ever had merit and i th i think that there are arguments that it has had in the past more merit anyway it's it's almost completely dead yeah. it's atrophied now and is working against itself so we're creating more rigidity less flexibility less capability of improvisation uh less courage killing mm -hmm. free speech i really think that the the uh i mean people who, who hear about this in the media may think that uh it's exaggerated that there has been just this leftist takeover of academia i i just don't think that that's true i think it really has i think it is a fact and i think that the only people who are resistant to that uh are people maybe you know within it who just feel the need to keep quiet 
Mm-hmm. I, I have known a lot of people who are really more professional academics. I don't count myself that way, even though um, I sort of drift in and out. But I, I'm, I've never been on any kind of tenured line, and there would never be any possibility of that, nor would I uh, have wanted that earlier in my life. But there are people just living in dire fear now of, mm-hmm. of any stepping out of line at all. So far from the ebullient, inclusive, uh, wonderful uh, caravan, sarai, safari, carnival, hunting magic, exuberance of festival that you're proposing, we could not be more decisively trying to eradicate that spirit and that enthusiasm and theos, the the gods within. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have to come from the type of person who conceived of Burning Man. It would have to come from that kind of, I think you would probably get into some, perhaps some dicey territory with some financing from tech bros who took some acid at Burning Man and all of a sudden had this revelation that might be, I mean, it would have to be completely outside of academia, right? Because what we're talking about is a free roaming uh, uh, exercise compound that would lead to uh, a kind of meritorious reward system, right? Based on what you are able to accomplish, but without any punishment if you don't. And yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It's, it's just, it's, it's not coming from our, because I mean, what's the, what's the money in it? I mean, in my conception of it, in my idealized conception of it, you're not even charging people to do this because they've been selected. Perhaps you're even paying them to do these kind of things, but go ahead. Sorry. Well, the money aspect of it, it's certainly money related to any technological sort of stream of innovation is completely the driving wheel and mm-hmm. is narrowing the focus so fully. I mean, uh, remember Douglas Hofstadter, who, you know, Gödel Eschel Bach, and he's still a, a computer scientist and uh theorist of mind in uh university of indiana uh i mean he was just the hottest thing that was just this amazing sort of uh achievement and he unfortunately did have some involvement with daniel dennett and that may not have been as good for his career um Mm -hmm. but he went completely off the boil he didn't have any interest in where artificial intelligence was going in terms of Siri and Alexa and self-driving cars. He wanted to, you know, really talk about the structure of mind and 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 the philosophy of mind, and to arrive at a whole new point of of understanding of the you know Cartesian dualist problem and really break through into, you know, kind of Esalen Institute territory. And and he might have been, you know, a colleague potentially of Rupert Sheldrake and Terence McKenna and a whole flowering of, of humanist possibility. But the money just will completely rule where, where AI goes. And it's all going to be about functionalism and 
we're going to get a very narrow perception of what that whole field of possible endeavor could be. You know, money's completely running that. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, you could say, well, of course, well, money's running everything. But I think there's nothing like venture capital where that those tributaries and rivers are flowing. Mm-hmm. And they always take kind of the nastiest, you know, practical bent. The cheapest way to get to market with a product, an app, you know, without any regard to the larger consequences and structures of thought that get influenced, you know? Yeah, it's a little dark. It's pretty dark. I um, I really want to know what this Rebus is. Uh, did you want to keep going <laughs> Because this... you mean do you mean to say you want me to divulge? Wait, 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 wait. Essentially, wait. Oh. the secret code of the of the example rebus I gave you. I want to tell you about my thought process. Okay. With regard to the rebus, is that cool? Okay, but I, you have created your own though, right? Yep, I got one. Okay, let's start with the one you created first. Okay. Because that's a good performance of the disc. And we will, uh, for people, I do like the fact that we're talking about it and people can't in real time see this. But David will make that available when we post. There we go. Here it is. I thought I lost my notebook for a second. I was was scared. I love that beautiful notebook. God. And I love the way you handled it and you presented it. There was... There was a real, uh, I don't know, if an, an, an a completely inanimate object could be sentient and appreciated and to have its aura changed, you did that to, the, to it, you know? Yeah. You ready? Yeah, hit me. Do you, well, never mind. I'll show it to you first. Show okay. It to you. I'll, show, I'll show it to you raw. Okay. There's that. All right. Okay. Well, look, that is awesome. You are on. Look, <laughs> I think we should, you know, what, what we should take you to the game reserve, give uh-huh. you a really cool Pueblo style caveman space age cabin, mm-hmm. and you just have to crank out. Rebuses, yeah, <laughs> I'm down, man. That could be my. I could be the Rebus guy. So yeah. I'll give you a hint. I'll give you a hint. Right, you had mentioned postmodernism. Uh huh. And so that I, I was thinking of a very popular postmodern novel when uh, when I wrote this. And there's a bit of titillation here, as you can see. There's a penis. Yes. That has that has uh, uh, semen coming coming out of it. Yes. Okay. Yep. So a. That's what's throwing me. I'm. I'm sort of. Uh, you see this guy? It's is a guy. it a monster? A mask? What's he doing? Yelling, shouting. What's a What's a synonym for yelling? Well, I've got to cross the. Oh, a screaming comes across the sky. That's it. Oh, it's yeah. it's Thomas Pynchon. That's right. The first yeah. line of Gravity's Rainbow. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. A screaming, a screaming comes across the, the sky, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That was really cool. Yeah. That was really cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you see, uh, you know, effectiveness in communication is almost what the other person understands, you know? Right. <laughs> I'm and, so happy. I'm so happy you got that. That was cool. Well, here's the, the version of my version of saying that is the proof of being able to understand a code is not breaking the code, but be to be able to send a message back in the right. code. Right. You know, and that's really that was well done. I love that. I love that. I love that choice. And I think that would be uh I think we could get you uh yeah, the game preserve, and that would be your gig, and you would be the Rebus man, and it could be like game show stuff, and people would be trying to guess, and it would become mm -hmm. a religion, and people would be interpreting and the merchandise aspect would be enormous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So with this Rebus, one, yes. 172 of PBR, uh, I focused, I want to take you through my thought process. Okay, please. Because I don't have it, but I want to take you through my thought process here. So eyes was what I focused on first. Uh -huh. So I first thought capitalize because that looks kind of like it could be it could be some kind of capital building i was really thrown off by how sort of abstract some of these things are and then i with the little guys down here these these two two men i i kept thinking so there's two of them so i kept thinking geyser so then i thought well capitalized geyser couldn't be it and then this little guy down here, I have no idea exactly what he's doing. Although he does look the best I could is like, he's, he's like, he's piloting or driving or something. And driving, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah. Drive, drive okay. is what I thought. So what I have, and I don't know how this first symbol relates, but I have organize a geyser drive. <laughs> Okay, so you got the organ pot because that that's really the is it an org? It's an organ. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So you okay. you've got the first this organ that that little drawing you have to almost look at you know a magnifying glass helps but it's not nearly as clear as the eyes the mm -hmm. eyes part you've got that so right. when right. you've got organized you you've definitely got something working. Yeah. Uh, okay, I like it. And the to, for the, me, the bot, the last one, the man driving, uh -huh. is the most abstract because it's it's yeah, it's just three. It's three little. There's no wheel, is the thing. But what does it is his. I mean, that's the expression of somebody who's driving. You know, you're kind of hunched over the wheel. But it's like you know, organize a drive is a thing. But I am dying to know what these two men plus er means because it's clear organizing guys or drive doesn't make any sense unless this is a phrase that existed before. No, I okay. I'll, I'll tell you two things. First of all, this is not a famous phrase in any sort of you know proverb sort of sense. This just it makes sense when you know what it is, but it's not something you would have heard somewhere else. But the key. 
the key because there is this little uh two, two of the one icon is repeated and it's the two guys now yeah. rethink your perception of what look look just at those two figures which is really one figure repeated okay. look at that again without any preconceptions and rethink what you see that as What might it be other than a human, a guy? Other than a human? Yeah. Oh, like a, oh, a monkey, like an ape. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, hold, yes, hold, hold we're on. getting ape, some ape, real time. Ape, aper, e. But there's no P for paper. No, but ape, aper. And then where do you go? This is oh, so good. right, right. Organize a, a paper is a paper drive a thing? <laughs> yeah, or a paper route. Yeah, a paper drive or a paper route. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Organize well, a paper. Oh, organize, organize a paper route is what it is. Yeah. Or a paper okay. drive. Yeah. Organize a paper drive. Yeah. Because when it, I think it, of drive, I think of like a blood drive or you know, yeah, like that some kind, kind of thing. Of, yeah. You're raising yeah. money. Oh, like okay, because they're not people. They're, they're if, if, I'm gonna post this because this is so funny. Like I would have never, without your coaching, I would not have. I think you were doing really, really well, and I'll. Uh, the reason that is that particular one is very special uh, is that. That was a practice of PBR for a couple of years. And by the time I got to college and I was working as a hospital orderly, there was uh, a dude who helped me get the job there. And he he was really a good dude to work with. And uh, he was an orderly, too. He had aspirations to, to become a doctor. And uh, I believe he did. I was the only sort of student who was just doing it as a job, you know, just anything mm -hmm. I could get. But there was a dude called Big Ed who probably was in real life a real just loser of a guy. Mm -hmm. But we all felt he'd become kind of holy because he was a really big dude, like 300 pounds. And he'd gotten very drunk on a motorcycle not a good look crashed and he woke up and both legs were gone mm. and he still was enormous and he had this little exercise room unto himself on these wrestling mats you know and he could roll around and there'd be this big ball and the sight of him, and there was this little panel of, of windows that would shine through the afternoon light. And to see Big Ed with his big green ball trying to deal with the fact that he ha didn't have half his body anymore, mm -hmm. and he's still enormous. But my orderly friend, who was obsessed with Pap's Blue Ribbon stuff. And he was the guy who had gotten the, the job. And we'd been looking at this and sharing. And 
we were trying to get Ed up into a wheelchair to take him to dialysis because his internal organs were completely stuffed and his kidneys were, you know, also injured in the accident. So we're getting this guy into this wheelchair mm-hmm. and Mike suddenly goes, organize a paper route. And I get the whole weight of Big Ed in my arms and crash down under this <laughs> now mutant form with the wheelchair <laughs> slamming back against the wall and the green ball rolling in the sunshine. And it was just one of the, it was just a scene. And so when I found that Rebus again, I thought, God, I'm going to save that. That's a magical totem. Thank that you for sharing great. that with me. That was great that you got that. And I love well, you. I I don't think I got it, but I with some coaching I got it. Oh, I see. Coaching I got it. And the one you came up with was terrific, and I clearly got that. So that was great. You did, yeah. You nailed that one. That one's pretty good. Um, These are fun, and I think that it's to go back to something that we talked about earlier in our conversation. I think that the visual artistic aspect of things is really something in the next. few years and probably for the rest of my life that I really need to explore. I'm interested in your fascination with visual art and music and your utilization of those techniques in order to, you know, have them all complement each other and uh, sort of develop a more three-dimensional, fully formed, organic human being. Uh, And I think that this conversation has been really useful to me in seeing that, you know, I do, I do think visually, but I've never thought of myself as an artist, but perhaps that's something that I could look into or pursue. Even if it's just in the case of just doodling. You know, the gifted gifted amateur idea, but applied to the arts. Right. It's tremendous. Like I invented a new instrument. I mean, it's actually really difficult to play, but it creates a very odd sense of wind instrument. So it's mm-hmm. non-electronic. I'm, I'm fooling around with uh, some DIY uh, synthesizer materials. And I know nothing about electronics, really. I know some principles of electricity, but nothing. And the not knowing is so therapeutic and inspiring. It is that child, you know, excitement and exuberance and the surprise in improvisation, but my wind instrument is called the lonely hobo. Mm, and it, like that. It, it, it in part was from, uh, it was based on a, a coyote bone that I found just mm. in the, just up, up Red Mountain behind me. And I was, you know, doing some chiseling. That's where the idea started. But I really think that there, there are potentials for thought for restructuring of thought and a reignition and a a completely new direction Mm -hmm. for where the human mind goes. All we have to do is not get stumped by that question, which somebody always comes up with very quickly. Well, how are you going to monetize that? You know, and Mm -hmm. They have completely just put this frame, which they believe to be holy and sacred, Mm -hmm. sacredly profane, on top of something that is just beginning to get moving. 
you know it's mm-hmm. like somebody picking up gus and just shaking him and looking where are you gonna go to college what right. you know right <laughs> not like what do you want to be when you grow up what yeah. you, you know yeah. and if we just keep away from that, because I think the monetization will take care of itself, but we need an alternative to the monetization idea. New mm-hmm. paradigms come from stepping outside the certainty and structure and protectiveness of old paradigms, mm-hmm. not by, you know, digging further into them. Absolutely. I like that idea too, because implicit in the question what are you going to do with your life suggests that your life doesn't have value outside of that inherent to just living and by extension your art you know how are you going to sell that like right i don't and maybe you know and the bigger perspective of of history will collapse an accordion and erase many sort of coherences and and evolutionary paths i mean i was thinking about the you know the the um the manufacture of glass mm-hmm. which is a pretty mysterious thing i mean glass used to just freak me out as a kid windows you know what glass making started 3500 years ago mm-hmm. the first windows glass used as windows were the romans in the first century that's a long lead in development time. R&D, if there's more commitment to R&D and less obsession on, you know, launch night and pub date and all of that stuff, yeah, everything yeah. needs to be more experimentally uh, driven rather than let's get that app to market, you know? It's, mm-hmm. uh, we're seeing that now. I mean, I think we're really, I, I can't help but feel when I do see those ads on Instagram or really apps and or new cars that are on the road, I can't help but think that should have cooked for another year. You should have left that one in the oven for a little bit longer. I don't know if uh, you've seen, I might've brought this up on the show before, but just the new model Chevys that have that ugly plastic black trim around their bumpers that could have waited another year. That could have, you know, it's, this is, uh, okay. This is a really good, uh, I'm going to write this down. This is a good takeoff point for next time because it links in so many things we've been talking about. It applies to architecture in a way that's interesting because it won't sound like it does at first. But I think that what I heard in what you just said is an issue that really fascinates me and connects a lot with the music and the visual art as another way of looking at writing. Changes in tempo. Mm-hmm. cultural tempo is really really mysterious and fascinating to check out we're in a very strange sort of uh phase now where we are rushing a lot of these decisions absolutely just ramming it through it's like butt baby we're ramming it you know <laughs> uh but i'm not i'm not titling the episode butt baby no 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 i understand <laughs> i understand at the same time, we're not in the groove of improvisation. 
you know, mm-hmm. in a jazz mm-hmm. sense. We're not free or a Grateful Dead sense or uh, a Nirvana sense or, you know, there are a lot of ways where, where that can happen much more spontaneously and in an organic flowing sort of way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're really neither, neither nor, you know. I saw an ad today for a book, a Kindle book called write a book in two hours and i was curious i read the first half of it and it's this guy who's talking about dictating whatever comes to his mind and then outsourcing that dic- that that dictation to somebody who would transcribe it and edit it and put it into book form and then he sells it online for maximum profit and i was just reading that and I thought that kind of mindset has to be destroyed. This idea that you can write a book in two hours or that a book is just a thing. It's just a a commodity that you can pump out and outsource to a team, usually that team being in some other country where they can work for pennies and then sell it back to people, uh, uh, and also, by the way, the fact that he dictated a book, outsourced all the work to create the book, and then sold it back. And the book itself is about doing that process. It's just forget the butt baby. It's the human centipede, right? It's just yeah. a person, you know, shitting in your mouth and then you shit in somebody else's mouth and it eventually comes back to him. And it's this endless cycle of shit. But I feel like. Uh, the reason why that came to mind was because it feels like a perfect encapsulation of the antithesis of what you're talking about. Uh, and also a really good example of just where we are in America right now. Talked about all everything needing to be, that app needs to go out now, right? We'll fix it in post. The idea of fixing it in post, well, why don't you just, work on it a little bit longer <laughs> why don't you take your time yeah yeah <laughs> you, you uh just reminds me of um in the mornings when i uh park my car when i'm at the university i i walk quite a long ways uh mm-hmm. which is usually it was in the past kind of a good way to sort of do some thinking and looking around it's become more, as I think I may have said, a little more challenged with some of the homeless people, some who are a little bit sort of dubious. But there used to be uh, a very busy shopping, you know, strip mall sort of thing right across from the university, which has gone very quiet in response to COVID and is very sad and is sort of uh, a lot of vacancies. But uh, my Vietnamese friend, unfortunately, had to close his really great sandwich place. And uh, he's gone back to the other side of town. But there's uh, a restaurant there called the Chicken Shack. And it's not open yet when I'm uh, getting there because I teach first thing in the morning, but it's starting the cooking process. And as I was walking past there the other day, there was a guy coming out of another, uh, one of the few other places that's still open. And he stopped and he took a big sort of whiff of the air and 
that called my attention. And then I got closer and I caught it too. And uh, it was an odd smell. It was, it was food related, if you know what I mean, but not necessarily as, as closely identifiable with chicken as one would like. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, you know, if it were an openly bad smell, it would be more understandable, like something went wrong, like a fire or something right. wrong. And mm -hmm. I thought that's exactly the way to put it. It it wasn't really an off smell of like chard or some, you know, the uh, you know, a grill had caught fire or something, or someone had just not taken out the you know, picked up the dumpster trash for a while. It was the cooking, something was happening, but it wasn't a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, where we're at now. You know, we're really kind of, we're cooking up something, but it, it doesn't smell good. You know? Do you have a tool and a tip for us? Today? I do. I do. And this is about eating. So I'm out at the, uh, the back going up the mountain the other day. And I mean, it could have been many other kinds of thoughts. So I don't want anyone to get focused on this particular little realization because this is an epiphany we have all the time and we put it away. But it's occurred to me again out on the on this desert mountain trail. Every single minute there are creatures being eaten alive you know and we know that and a lot we know there's there are are funny news stories in world weekly news or the new york post or the like of that uh there are horror films based on that we process that that information all the time fast fish and loose fish is a great chapter in moby dick about that little meditation on the nature of things being eaten and the whole food chain made a lot of liberal readers in mid-19th century America uncomfortable, that one, you know. And we don't know what to think about because everyone goes, well, is this a, an allegory about capitalism, of eating people and devouring them? How am I to feel morally about that when I'm choosing kindness, you know? And it, it really freaks people out, you know. They don't know how to take it. It's one of those constant realities of life that I realized again, it's so hard to maintain focus and balance that it's actually essential, essential to invert our attention. And this is the principle. The more fundamental something is, the more it must be overlooked or downplayed day to day. Mm. Mm, interesting okay. i really interesting. Think, i think that applies to so many things and it is the organizing principle of what we call society which is now you know the public face of living and it's the media face it's the social media meeting ground that's the organizing principle dynamic that's making that level work so my tool is this just spend a moment clearing the mind and try to identify one aspect of life 
that's analogous to the every minute creatures were being eaten alive. Just, you know, analogous in the same way that the rebus, the PBR rebus was in a model for your own. Just there are thousands of, of these examples. Pick one, pick one, and just try to slightly reframe that. Just try to slightly distort, expand, or just alter your perception of one of those fundamental features of reality that is so uh, King Kongishly huge that you have to ignore it. Mm. You really can't deal with it because it just would would it would stop you with paralysis. But if you if you position that just differently and gain one little angle of perspective that's different, I it, it's enormously charging for the mind, and I I I think it's particularly helpful for people who are in a creative uh, project maybe say three quarters of the way through or trying to bring it across the finish line. If they're stumped, this is a really good uh, sludge breaker. And it's not too hard to do. There are many, many examples. Every minute, some creatures are being eaten alive. Okay, we that's so big and raises so many questions. We get into moral allegories and... Uh, we ignore it. Well, let me find one other thing like that in the world. And I'm just going to rethink about it a little bit. I'm not going to try to change it. I'm not going to dwell and meditate on it too long. I'm just going to see if I can come at it from a different point of view. And the after effects of that will be huge and in fairly instantaneous. Yeah. I wonder, does it have to be something similarly negative to creatures eating each other because- no 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 it does not and i i think yeah. thank you for mentioning that no i don't want people to get hung up on that go back to sort of that aerial view ai algorithmic you know rather you know just think of it as an unknown category or, or something that is mm-hmm. uh the more neutral the better frankly yeah. uh it doesn't have to be but it's something that is for whatever reason whether it be the seriousness of it or the potential negativity. I mean, it's kind of a rhetorical argument to say that that is necessarily negative. Why isn't it? I mean, that's kind of the whole point, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. well, it's negative. It's, it's the essence of life, you know? I mean, it's birth and death. You know, you can't have one yeah, of that. birth was what came to my mind, that every second of every day, there's a new human being that is ripping its way out of a, woman uh yeah not not um, not like but baby (laughs) we can't escape but baby look here's a bonus we'll 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 offer listeners uh a a ready-made tool they're never as good as the ones you make yourself by the as as we know but here's another one that could be there are Nine billion people on the planet now, right? In some way, in in some inescapable way, there are people who, that means, therefore, there is some aspect of people who have been here the whole time. That has to be true. 
there has never been a moment in history where all the people died, all the humans, the Homo sapiens died, and then Homo sapiens as a species just emerged, you know, out of nothing again. That never happened. There is some continuity throughout this whole thing. Now, that is so weird to think about. It's crazy, about. right? It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Because when, it, we, when we watch movies uh, that are set in the past, whether that's medieval Europe or, you know, it doesn't matter, 10,000 BC, and we're watching, let's say we're watching a movie that's based in 10,000 BC and we see a whole family get eaten by a, a super saber-toothed tiger that weighs like 600 pounds or whatever. That's not us. That didn't happen to our, like, we made it. It's one of those things that if you start thinking about that, you could just simply freeze and never get past it. So somehow to manage to think about it and not get completely, to not have it be a large insertion that never comes out, you know? You just you want to just think about that a little bit differently somehow. And just one little angle, one little glint, you know, and mm -hmm. suddenly you see many things differently. Mm -hmm. I like and that. the tip is kind of uh, I like this because it sorts people instantly out. It ties in with my um, DYI instruments and and tools generally, but invent and make a bird caller yep. for a kind of bird that doesn't exist. And if you think about that and you say, if, if you, you know, we'll just spend say an hour on a Sunday morning or something, Sunday afternoon doing that. And someone asked you what you're doing and you said to them, I'm, inventing and making a bird collar for a kind of bird that doesn't exist. That would be a great diagnostic tool. You know, you were talking about throwing the tomahawk down, the Kiowa mm -hmm. to split the tornado. That's what it would do. Because there'd be some people going, that's a really cool idea. I'll, you know, and they'd get in and, and suddenly you'd be, you know, you'd be making all these sounds and a whole new thing would be going on. And there'd be some other people going, well, you know, that's really stupid. Or how are you going to monetize that? Or what's mm -hmm. wrong with you? Or, you know, don't you have anything better to do? Or, you know, on and on and on. The tornado would split in half. I love that. I like the idea of somebody asking, don't you have anything better to do? And responding with a straight face while still making the bird call for the bird that doesn't exist saying, yes. <laughs> It, you know, sometimes I, and I think this is the deeper thing about, we you know, we're worried about you know, the divisions in society, but what if they're just frankly there, man, you know, that's what Dennis Hopper would just go. Yeah. They're, they're just, they're two, two kind of people, man. You know, <laughs> the one, <laughs> no, I do like that. I do. Cause I could totally, I could see myself encountering a person doing something like that and saying oh, i we have to be friends i have to know 
what you're doing. And also, I kind of want to make one. I'm going to I'm going to do that with Gus. Well, once I was walking across the university early in the morning when I was back when I was a um, Black Mountain fellow and there was this Latino dude. Like a father, and it, tur- it turns out he had his whole family with him. He's got his camera down on the ground, and he's shooting this weird shot. And his two pretty young kids still, and his wife, they're along, and they they see me walking past, and they start to laugh. And the wife goes, oh, we've been caught. And, and, and she goes, well, he's a little eccentric. You know, and I go, listen, I'm a photographer and I and I got down on, on the ground with him. We're sort of, you know, and pretty soon it's like a little tribal group. He got the whole family and, and they were having a great time. Sunshine, exercise, art, family together, creative decisions. What's so wrong about that? You know, mm-hmm. and I thought it was terrific. I think if people had a little more courage to share their eccentricities, uh, and certainly dads, I think dads are paralyzed with fear now. They used to be like, there used to be some crazy dads who would just, you know, no, we're going to do that. We're going to build this giant box kite and we're going to launch <laughs> Jimmy out over the ocean, you know? And they yeah. go, yeah, yeah. No, I want to do it. I want, you know, no, mm-hmm. none of that anymore. Mm-hmm. Got to get that spirit mm-hmm. back. Yeah. You watch, uh, so I have the algorithm on Instagram. It's figured me out. At one point in my 10-year career on Instagram, it was all like, you know, girls and skateboarders. Now it's all dad videos. And uh, there's some funny stuff on there. But I also get the runoff from, you know, mommy blogs. Ooh. So it's, wi- it's women who, who say things like, when your child does something correctly you don't want to say oh what a good boy you are because then the child will tie his identity to being a good boy instead you should talk to the blah 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 or when you're talking to your partner and your child interrupts tell your child my ears will be ready for you in five seconds but i'm going to fit and i'm like no let's build a bird call for a bird that doesn't exist yeah <laughs> my ear oh yeah no 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 my no, ears yeah. will be ready no it's... you just say hey chill i'm talking to your mom like what kind of children are being raised by people who speak to them this way it's it's crazy it, it's well it's monstrous it's monstrous mm-hmm. and it's going to be so strange i mean it already is so strange really but i right. think it would be just absolutely Beyond anything that any science fiction or predictionist has uh, has written about, I, I, I think the real depths of this and how that's going to smear across different uh, levels of socioeconomic status is, is God only knows. But it, it could be. What do you do when you're in a bar and you interrupt somebody and they don't tell you that their ears aren't ready for you yet? Like you're in a biker bar and a biker turns to you and says, look here, fella, my ears aren't ready for you yet, but give me five seconds. <laughs> I want to watch that movie. I want to see that. I think, 
Look, I think the new biker messiah thing is your calling. I mean, Rebus is, <laughs> you've got the basis of a whole religious movement here. Yeah. I, you know, now all you have to do is monetize it. You know? Yeah, how do we how do we monetize it? Well, the Rebus idea, I mean, you've got sure, oh, look, think of that, you know, I mean, we've we've got boob mania. More yeah. big knockers, certainly yeah. more butt, but I, I really like the booty. I'm not I'm not gonna complain about that. The cleavage, the constant cleavage worries me, but t-shirts and tank tops with your rebuses on them, they yeah. give a great reason for staring right at the jugs. That's it's a perfect really good point. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah. I don't know about you. I never needed an excuse to do that, but I like where your head's at. Well, it's when you get right down and sort of like really close up, you know, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, man, uh, I, uh, uh, I want to get into dreams. I, uh, I've been, I did something really interesting with my dreams. Well, I didn't do it but I was told something in my dreams, right? Ooh, I like that. And I was given the image of a, a, a kind of underground wine cellar with a, a wooden door with a, you know. And uh, it told me that I needed to work on opening and closing that door because that was the entrance to the imaginal right so it said right now this door is open now i want you to close it and i closed it and the dream went black and then i heard a voice say okay open it again so i opened it and all the dream imagery came back and it said uh i'd been reading recently about you know gastrointestinal stuff because rio since she gave birth she has a lot of like acid reflux and i read that it's a it's a little hole it's a hole in your esophagus that leads to your stomach that normally opens and closes normally but when you have acid reflux apparently that hole stays open and the acid comes up out and you burp and you know burn and it's not pleasant but what the dream was trying to get to me in dream language was that uh you know, this door that you have uh, is open all the time. And it was something related to to phones and the internet and how if I left that door open all the time, and this is sort of counterintuitive for the, you know, the fact that we're, we're, we're magic-y, imaginative, uh, you know, sort of woo-woo guys, right? Uh, <laughs> if, if you leave it open all the time, right? The issue is, is that now with this new technology, there's stuff that's going into the cellar instead of coming out, right? Uh, cellar. The, yeah, that's the cellar door, right? Um, but uh, yeah, no, so I thought that was really interesting about like, and I do it in my mind now. I actually think, you know, I'm going to Chick-fil-A or something. So I can, I'm going to close it for right now and just sort of focus on my, surroundings and kind of peel back from from constantly being in a state of you know thinking about everything all the time and i didn't take it as a as a directive to 
stifle the imagination or um or anything like that it was more along the lines of kind of keeping something pure right and not allowing too many things to corrupt what you might have in that cellar interesting the cellar well that gets back to sort of bachelard and and i think this sort of sense of psychogeography in an architectural sense of trying to really understand what that those metaphorical frames mean and to be kind of flexible in how how they're interpreted you know um were you in control of the door or yes. solely 100%. in control of the door or or you could control the door but other factors also could or was that in, not clear? in in this dream it was all me okay yeah, I had the power to open and close the door, and I didn't get any sense that anything else was opening or closing the door. Okay. Hmm. Well, it's um, it's sort of interesting because it kind of uh, earlier in the episode when you were talking about your dad and going into that sort of sort of psychological mode, it sounds as if you're doing some sort of deep diving you know? Yeah. And then talking about Rias is, you know, acid reflux and it's, it's very much down into uh, the depths of, well, from uh, on a body's metaphor, the stomach, the intestine, Mm -hmm. the digestive sort of system, uh, as opposed to, well, depths of psyche, for instance, it, it, Mm -hmm. it's fairly, um, it's a certain kind of imaginal, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's only one part of that jurisdiction. And I think it's interesting that that, that control of the door was in your court mm-hmm. entirely. And it wasn't sort of as, as in a challenge to go through and that you would kind of be, well, the victim of, or, the, or you'd have to accept the consequences of that. You're going to be in that passage or into another chamber or another something else. It wasn't that sort of scenario. Uh, but I think that's kind of empowering that you have, you know, control of that and maybe that kind of reminder. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. I thought it was just a neat, this neat idea of all the talk about opening yourself up and being open to the world and being open to all the signals and this dream perhaps saying maybe, it's time to close some of that off. It's again, it goes back to the unlearning and the Taoism and the the pulling back. I'm in a real state right now of uh, being somebody who is naturally radically open. Mm-hmm. I went on a podcast recently called Rare Candy and I was talking with the host and told him that I'm what you might call a radical believer, which if you tell me that you were visited by the Virgin Mary yesterday, I believe you off rip i have to not believe you over a period of time right i have to kind of sniff the bullshit out after that but i believe you just in that moment when you tell me that something happens and so there's this idea of openness and what this seemed to be saying to me is that it's a good strategy to also because it doesn't come naturally to me to also close that on occasion so as not to kind of corrupt that innocent, positive, optimistic 
outpouring that can also come from that seller. Makes me think of, you know, a lot of the really important metaphors, I think, are very physical and very close at hand. I, uh, and this is not uncommon with my, it's just a, it's physics. But if I open my front door, and this is the, it was today, it was warm enough to allow, I wanted to air it out a little bit. And then I go out the back door, of course, the front door will slam, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it's, it's, I mean, I, it, you really, if you, you really have to go out quickly to keep the front door open if you go out the back door, because mm-hmm. it will slap. It's just, you know, there's just a vacuum there, you know, that that's the way the air moves. So it's not a vacuum. It's just the way the air actually draws. But I think that notion of, of you know, if you're going to open one door, it's something else is going to close. Mm. Oh, I like that. You know, thanks for that. Yeah. I'm going to write that down. That's it's important. important that, that channel both open the whole time. It's really not possible, you know. What's going on in your dreamscape right now? Well, there were there were sort of two things. uh, One was um, I had for a long time uh, uh, my operative anxiety dream was sort of the the young adult version of the the school one where you've you could have dropped a class but you didn't, and Mm -hmm. you find yourself on the last day taking an exam that you're completely unprepared for. Had that one, yeah. My my uh, young adult tweak on that, very personalized, was me needing to break into my former warehouse studio in Melbourne and not wanting to meet my former landlord, who I had gotten on well with at some point, and then he went crazy, which is why I laughed. He was um, a really gifted artist, a very creative person, also a very working class uh guy he was a metal metal sculptor but he transported art and could do anything fixing his truck but he had been in vietnam he had he was a hippie he had long hair he had been a heroin addict he very complicated weird dude and the anxiety of breaking back in to get something out of my old studio and i was never clear of what i was trying to retrieve that was my ongoing uh anxiety dream for many years and then i forgot i had one about something else that i had forgotten it was the unused office and there was a period of time when i started off in advertising and i bought this you know derelict house up in the country and i was commuting on the train and sometimes the 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 work was i was kept too so late i needed to get a place back in the city and when my business partner and I launched our ad agency, we just took this little room in what had been a formerly a travel lodge motel. So there were a few sort of real life connections with these interim spaces because I was desperately trying to get money to pay off this house and to get started. And I, I wanted to, to not be commuting to the city at all. But so the dreams for a long time were this this unused office where I'm going back to clean out stuff. And there's always these weird boxes of old cereal and kind of secondhand silverware that because this isn't sort of somewhere that I am very often. It's oftentimes somewhere I'll just crash, you know, late Friday night because of, of too much work. 
And there were two odd instances that really happened in real life at, at the, the Travelodge place. I woke up one morning to hear this very strange sound. And the Cadbury Chocolate Company, what that time was using the uh, mascot of a giant purple cow. Well, outside on the grounds of Albert Park Lake, which is where the all of the water sports for the 1956 Olympics, which is what introduced television to Australia, was in an enormous balloon. It took 30 or 40 men with holding down the ropes to keep this purple cow from getting launched. And that really did happen in real life. And maybe that ingrained some sort of thing about this unused office, but it came back again full force. And I don't know what it means. It's obviously unfinished business or something. Uh, and I couldn't work out why it had come back. But then I had a dream about, there was one guy I met in college, and I only met him at the freshman orientation when we were on this camping fishing trip. And I quite liked him. He was one of the few people who really struck me as smart. He was from Ohio, and he was he was kind of perfect for the college in a way that I was just not. I had long hair. I was on drugs. I was from Hollywood most recently. I was I wanted to go to, to the New England woods because it was the most different from super urban LA. And I didn't want to be in any urban center like New York or Boston. And everyone else seemed really false and strange this first weird week, except this guy. And I never I saw him once and just waved across the campus in all the time thereafter. He was got involved in fraternity, a fraternity, and I didn't want to have anything to do with him. In the dream, we're up on this cliff about 40 or 50 feet off the water. Not so far as, as you'd get, you die, but still nonetheless a long way to fall. I've taken a couple of jumps for that. I, I would rather jump out of an airplane and, and really fall than, than do that. But I didn't push him, but I did somehow get him to, to jump. I lured him into jumping and he disappeared. And I can see him going down. It might have been 60 feet. It was quite significant. It was just enough where you go. And if you if you're male, you'd be wondering, oh shit, I hope my when I hit the water, my balls don't just, you know, there's no way to do it. You're better to be naked than than uh have anything that could go ripping up your groin. And in the moment, I just I have that kind of feeling in my stomach thinking, I made him do that. And I suddenly find in my hand a small and not the same thing as my father's ice pick from the 10th Mountain Division, which is currently an issue of kind of dispute with my, somewhere in my sister's garage. And I would really like to have it as a magical talisman symbol. I mean, it's really important. And to not know where that is concerns me. But right after this guy goes off the cliff, I find another one that has... Mm -hmm magical power but it's 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 different and i realized of course dad would he was he was in the 10th mountain division 
he'd have a couple of ice picks. And I almost completely forgot having, I think I baited my, my sort of friend into jumping because I certainly wasn't going to, I knew that much. I knew that much. So that was my dream. An alternative ice pick, a friend who wasn't really a friend, that, but someone I admired who I never ended up seeing after that first weird fishing trip, camping trip orientation, and a return to an old anxiety dream about simply a, an interim office space that I rented and occasionally had to sleep over a couple of nights. I don't know. It was odd. Very vivid, though. Very, very physically set designed. Do you think that when you snuck back into that office, you might have been looking for the ice pick? Well, it, 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 it I certainly think of the, the connection between the office setting and going back into my studio, where I am, those scenarios, I always am trying to get something, something I've forgotten. So I'm, I'm in that, in the, in the office thing, it seems like I'm desperately cleaning it out to not have to pay the rent on that anymore. And I'm worried about, but there is something missing. There's something I'm not done. It's a little bit even vaguer than the, than the warehouse studio thing. In those dreams, I'm always after one thing. So maybe it is that. and Or maybe the ice pick is this, it's totemic enough to be really worth going for. I mean, that's an artifact that, um, sure. I mean, even in the dream, I, I, I enjoy holding it. You know, it's got power. It's got purpose. It's, uh, you know, hmm. it's, got, it's got some real oomph. It just seems like the the message of the second dream, which is that, of course, your dad had multiple ice picks, somehow might map onto there being, you know, maybe multiple studios, right? Or whatever it is you're looking for in the studio, there being yeah. one of those things, you know? So all this anxiety that's based around this this one particular totem, the idea of the duplicate and the duplicate being just as totemically powerful as the quote unquote original seems to seems to factor into that. It's like it's the fixation on um well, it's not it's not in both in both dreams, there's a kind of anxiety. One's based off of tricking or coaxing your friend into jumping off this cliff. And then in the other one, it's getting out of this place before you have to pay another month's rent. But both of them seem to be, you know, this, this kind of anxiety driving you away, but you, you, you can't quite leave until you find the, the thing, the totem. Which is kind of a key, you know, in, mm -hmm. in a symbolic sense. And then, and the, the, but the second one answers it, right. Which is that, you know, Hey, there's, there's, there's a bunch of them, right. Like don't, don't stress out. Well, you know what? That makes me think of our last episode. We were talking about uh, John Lautner and his concept of dis disappearing space in architectural terms. And you right. were saying that in order to have disappearing space, that, that you have to have necessarily a space. means you have a yeah. focal point. A focal point, you know? yeah. 
And, mm-hmm. and in fact, in practical terms, in, in a residence, an actual building constructed in the real world, you might need a few of those totemic perspective points that are kind of analogous to, like you need more than one ice pick in that sense. But the joy of having that focal point, that handle, that sense of power, that key-like quality to it, that is so, that makes the whole thing work then. And without it, you've got old cereal boxes and, Mm -hmm. you know, nasty Mm -hmm. silverware from the Salvation Army that you don't ever really even use because you get Thai takeaway, you know? I think we'll stop it there. Okay. All right. I love your Rebus so much.